Any questions from Luke? Yes, Zach. The microphone is coming. The microphone is coming. My question, speaking into the microphone, <laughs> is uh, on the part about blessed are you who weep now. Mm -hmm. How does that work with, um, like Paul saying that you know we should be, always be rejoicing? Yeah. And, um, so yeah, how does kind of keeping those two things in sure. balance of weeping and rejoicing. And I, I don't think they're mutually exclusive concepts. Um, the Bible can put together an odd variety of commands. Uh, in Psalm 2, those who approach the sun are told to rejoice with trembling. And so I would say that Paul, go to 2 Corinthians um, 4, where I think we see the, the both taking place at the same time. Pretty clearly. Um, in 2 Corinthians 4, it is in some respects, a friend of mine calls this the Magna Carta, the Magna Carta of, of the Christian faith. Um, 2 Corinthians 4 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested to our bodies, in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh, so death works in us, but life in you. Since we have come to the same point of faith according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised Jesus, raised, raised the Lord Jesus, will raise us also with the Lord Jesus, and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that his grace extends to more and more people, and may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer man is wasting away, our inner man is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are, but to the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are transient, but the things that are eternal, seen unseen are eternal. So there's a sense in which there's a suffering and a rejoicing that are coinciding. There's a, there's a mourning and a rejoicing. I would, I would simply put it this way, that as the Holy, when God shows you your sin, when you become aware of your sin, do you still treat it seriously and mourn and, and re repent and, and deal with it properly and come out the other side into rejoicing and joy? Or have we become so... Uh, presumptuous on God's forgiveness that we just sort of, you know, yeah, yeah, you'll forgive me, it's okay. Um, I, and I think Jesus is blessing a mentality that, so it's, it's mourning things worthy of mourning. You know, it, it's not just mourning for the sake of mourning, but if, if you have any real awareness of what you're doing in a day, you'll have plenty of cause for mourning. I know I do. Um, and dealing with things seriously. 
Does that, does that make sense? So it's, it's the both and. We live now in the time where fasting is still appropriate and feasting is still appropriate. There's an inaugurated kingdom. There's a now not yet tension that's present. So Jesus and his disciples aren't fasting, but we fast. The disciples after Jesus' ascension fast. And we rejoice. We're kind of living in two worlds. And so I'd say a total emphasis on one or the other would be unhealthy. So if all you emphasize and I've, I've met people like this. Um, we shouldn't call ourselves sinners because the New Testament calls us saints. Okay, that's great. Do you sin? Yes. What do you call someone who sins? Uh, yeah. And if you're just trying to be faithful New Testament emphasis, sure, the New Testament emphasis is on saint. Um, but you can so emphasize that that you start to trivialize your sin, that you start to just, it doesn't matter because I'm his kid. On the other hand, if you so emphasize you know, contrition and feeling bad about sin that you never get around to but Christ has borne it, praise God, you, you, can, you can be equally unhealthy. I, I think it's both, the both and. Rejoice with trembling. Fear God and rejoice. Um, and so, yeah. Any, any other thoughts on that point? Okay. Any other questions from this morning or from Luke in general? You guys are a talkative crowd today. Going once, going twice. Uh, oh, we got one. David Oldsgard. First Timothy chapter 3. Um, qualities of uh, deacon and elders. Mm-hmm. Verse 7. Moreover, he must be thought well of by outsiders. Mm. Mm. So how, how does that tension work? That is that is a, is a great tension. I'm assuming Jesus is rebuking, woe to you when people speak well of you. Here's a qualification for a, a deacon that, um, that he must be, and an elder must be thought well of by outsiders. I was talking about this, actually the same thing, because there's a sense in which nowadays, if, if the world knows what we believe about the Bible teaches about marriage and sex and, and gender, they will not think well of us. So how could anyone be qualified to be a deacon or an elder in that context? I, I think in, in Timothy's context, is, it would be a, the assumption would be just as the first qualification is above reproach, and the assumption being the reproach being a biblical reproach. So I might get reproached because I'm bigoted or because I'm intolerant, right? But you take that challenge to Scripture, does the scripture reproach me? No, it doesn't. So, so my, my unbelieving neighbor might reproach me if they knew what I thought about some of those things, but their approach wouldn't stick. Likewise, I would assume the good reputation with outsiders would be amongst those things that are valid. So my reputation amongst outsiders might be bad because they think I'm intolerant. It shouldn't be bad because they think I'm a liar, or they think I'm a cheat, or they think I'm a swindler, or they think I'm, you know what I mean? So I, I would assume the same concept, that the charge has to stick. It has to be a good reputation in so far as the things that they speak ill of me are good things. Does that make sense? I think it has, sort of has to be that. Likewise, when Jesus connects it to the false prophets, um, it doesn't necessarily mean in each and every instance where your community speaks well of you, you're standing in the tradition of the false prophets. There are people for acts of valor and heroism and for hard work, get good reputations, are are praised. That's not always wrong. Um, 
the, the issue is the connection with the false prophets. And, and Paul saying statements like in Galatians 1, am I now trying to please you or am I trying to please God? If I was trying to please man, I would not be trying to please God. That, that this isn't an absolutized statement. So that if ever your coworker comes up to you and says, good job, Dave, uh-oh. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's, or your employer says, well done. You go, oh no. No, that's, that's not what he's saying. Um, I, I would plug into that praising you for the same reasons they praise, praise the false prophets. Or to put it in a, in a modern category, those Christians, and I'll use scare quotes, those Christians who found ways to read the wisdom of the world into the Bible so that they are able to amen what our culture says about ethics are getting a lot of praise and a lot of acceptance and a lot of, you know, see, these guys are loving people. These guys aren't judgmental. I would think at that point, you're doing what the false prophets did. You're telling people what they want to hear and speak, saying you're speaking for God and telling people a message they want to hear, just like the false prophets did. Woe to you. Um, woe to you who do that. So, yes, Carol. Here for 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or a wrongdoer or a mischief maker. Yet if one suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but under that name, let him glorify God. Right, right. Um, also, I was thinking the, this morning when you were talking about that point about Lot. Mm. Lot, who, who sat at the gates of the, of the city of Sodom and mm. apparently was one of the one of the leaders, and somehow in the New Testament he's described as righteous Lot, so he, he apparently hadn't caved in all the way around, but right. but yet when it was time to go, he had to get out of there and, and be looked on as a fool, you know. Oh, yeah, and they, they rebuked him, you know, you're going to judge us now, and we, uh, yep. oh, yeah, they got all types of mad at them, yeah. And that's what's difficult is partnerships of the world can be dangerous. I mean, I, I strongly suspect that it has not been to the church's good that we have had a position of prominence in our culture for the last couple hundred years. I, I don't think it may have borne some good fruit for the culture. I don't think it's borne a ton of good fruit for the church. Um, I don't think we're healthier because of it. I think people have bought into this notion that you can have it both ways. You can have men praise you and God praise you. You can have your wealth here and your wealth there. You can have your satisfaction here and your satisfaction there. You, you can have it both. And historically and, and usually it's one or the other. And so it suddenly starts to creep in and Christianity starts developing a pretty strong materialism. Um, and, and so I, I don't think it was terribly helpful for the church. I think Christianity has been good for the culture, but I don't think the reverse is true. And, and I don't think that, um, it's, we, the church does well anywhere where it's, where it's thought well of and prosperous for long. I think those trials tend to be far, far more difficult than... In every example, the church thrives in persecution. It's just not pleasant. But in every instance, the church is pure, people are bold, the church grows again and again and again. The church has no problem existing and thriving in persecution. It's just awful for the people involved. And usually, the church does the exact opposite in prosperity. It just, you know, gets lazy, fat, and, you know... Um, it starts beating the slaves. So, yeah, ab absolutely, absolutely. Any further thoughts on that? 
going once. Okay, any questions in general about anything at all before we go to 1 Corinthians 14? What? Like what's for lunch? What are you saying? In regards to the, yes, darling, in regards to the Bible. I don't know how the rugby game is going, if that's what you want to know. Um, yes. Oi. Of course I do. Okay. Um, okay, please to open to 1 Corinthians 14. We've got half an hour here. Okay. Let's see what happens. Okay. First Corinthians chapter 14. Now, let me recap where we've come and where we're going. We've established in First Corinthians 12 and other passages that every believer um, receives from the Spirit a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. In fact, go back to chapter 12. Just, we can just cherry pick, look at some things. That's 12.7. To each, and that would be individual, to each one is given the manifestation of this by the Spirit for what purpose? What's the purpose of spiritual gifts? Common good. Notice that. that that's going to be a big point I'm going to make in a little bit. The common good. If God's given you a gift by His Spirit, it's for the benefit of others. You with me? Okay. And he says that again, verse 11, all these are empowered by one of the same spirit who apportions to each one, each Christian, individually as he wills. And then he, he finishes out and talks about love in 13, and then he gets back to 14. And in 14, Paul is dealing by contrasting two particular spiritual gifts, prophecy and tongues. And we've started looking in on this. Um, it's, it's a similar format that he did earlier in the book. If you remember in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, Paul comes out and he says, there's all these divisions among you, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Paul, and I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Christ. And he's dealing with the divisions, but eventually he narrows down to two divisions, those of Apollos and those of Paul. In chapter 12, he's got all the spiritual divisions, and the eye says to the hand, you're not part of the body, and the hand says, I'm not part of the body. And now he's narrowing it down to two specific cases, prophecy and tongues. Same exact pattern he used earlier in the book. Okay, let's define our terms, prophecy and tongues. Prophecy is a supernatural empowered ability by the Spirit to foretell truth. It does not always have a predictive element to it. It does not always have a spontaneous element to it. There's plenty of examples in the Old Testament, like, say, Moses, who was a prophet, where God tells him beforehand, go tell Pharaoh, da-da-da-da-da. Then Pharaoh shows up, and tells Pharaoh, da-da-da-da-da. He wasn't speaking extemporaneously. He'd already been told what to say. And Ezekiel, repeatedly, God tells Ezekiel, you're a man of God, go and say, and he tells him. Other times, it appears in, in 1 Corinthians 14 and other places, that sometimes it's extemporaneous. But Paul says, and I want you to notice this at the end of verse um, 32, or 31 and 32. 
it's, this is not some ecstatic experience because he says, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all can learn and all be encouraged and the spirit of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not the God of confusion but of peace. He's just said basically if, if one's speaking and a revelation is made to another, the, the first one's got to stop and he can't say, oh, I can't stop prophesying. The spirit has control of me. God's spirit is not a spirit of confusion. Shut up is what he's saying. That's what he says. Spirit of prophets are subject to prophets. If I try to say, oh, I went so late today because the spirit was moving in me, you point me to that and you say, no. You could have stopped if you wanted to. What? No, I didn't want to. Um, okay. But I, but I can't blame it on the Holy Spirit. I can blame it on myself. Yeah. Or take the credit. Eh? Okay. No. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, so that's prophecy. So prophecy could be a range of things. I mean, there's a, there's a sense in which, there's not fully, but there's a sense in which even what I'm doing in preaching is prophetic to the degree that I'm forth-telling. Now, the big difference is normally the prophets aren't preaching texts. They're either revelations are made to them by God's Spirit, or God himself in the Old Testament is speaking to the prophets and telling them what to say. Um, so so that's, that's, the, that's prophecy. Tongues is a very, very unhelpful translation. And I found out, by the way, the Holman Standard actually translates this correctly, which is really nice. When the King James Version in 1611 translated glossolalia as tongues, it was a wonderful translation because it meant in English language, your mother tongue. You ever People still will use that expression? The Greek word, here's what I find unhelpful. Greek word glossolalia, normal, everyday, common word. It means one of two things. It means the organ of speech, your tongue, or it means your language. Just like 400 years ago, the word tongue meant the organ of speech or language. is a perfect fit. Since that time, however, we stopped calling languages your tongue, what tongue do you speak? And now pretty much the only time you hear the word tongues is in the context of spiritual gifts, the charismatic movement, and it's taken on a sort of specialized, nuanced, and somewhat murky, mysterious flavor, which is completely absent from both the King James original and the Greek. So the very first thing I want to do when we talk about this is we're talking about the gift of languages, okay? Straightforward, it's the gift of languages. No, no question about that. It's a gift of languages. But the King James put it as, the reason why most translations do tongues is the King James set the bar. What's the first thing you do when you check out a new translation? You go to your favorite passage and you see what they do with it, right? And so you go to, that's why most of these are really, for some strange reason, most of the translations are pretty darn close in Psalm 23. That's where everyone goes. Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, or Psalm 1, or, you know. And likewise, the Holman Standard is the only translation I've seen that had the guts to, uh, I mean, even my beloved ESV caved. Um, but the Holman Standard, and I'll open it up here real fast, had the guts to actually translate it in modern English, which is language, which I just, it clears the air of the mysterious spookiness. We're talking about the gift of languages. And so 1 Corinthians, let me get the Holman out, 14, go, and then open... Holman, I'll read you what the Holman standard says. Pursue love, desire spiritual gifts, above all that you may prophesy for the person who speaks in another language. Um, he's not speaking to men but to God since so understands him. However, he speaks mysteries in the spirit. And it just translates language or another language throughout the whole passage. And it, I think it helps clarify things. It's, it's good. You with me so far? Okay. 
Next, we've got to look at what Paul's talking about here. So he tells the body, and the, the, the goal of this is this. We're trying to evaluate, um, we're trying to evaluate the gift of tongues specifically, the gift of languages specifically. And my goal is not to look at every version where people claim to have it, but much like the, uh, the people who try to spot counterfeits study the real dollar bills and $20 bills, if we evaluate what the, the gift of languages ought to look like, what should we expect it to look like, then you can evaluate anyone who claims to have that, how you think that measures up. So that's, that's my purpose. My purpose is not to take on specifics, to take on any particular people, but rather to say, okay, let's, what should we expect this to look like? Okay? With me? Everyone so far? We're good? All right. Here we go. All aboard. <sighs> okay. And what Paul is contrasting and he's mostly dealing with is in corporate worship. Because his big complaint about the gift of languages is that if it doesn't, isn't accompanied by translation, it doesn't benefit anybody. And that's his big thing he's going after, which is why he talks about the, these gifts are given the benefit of other people. So he says, earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you, and the you there's plural, you all, may prophesy. For one who speaks in another language or a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him. But he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So, so there's your first contrast. And he, if you've been reading from chapter 12 you get why he likes prophecy better. It's because it benefits everybody, whereas without translation, speaking another language doesn't benefit anybody. Um, so then he moves on. The one who speaks in the tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in other languages or tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in another language unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. You see the emphasis we're looking at? The gifts were given for the edification of the church, and now he's in, contemplating different scenarios, and he's evaluating their worth by whether or not everybody's being built up. You with me so far? Make sense? Okay, let's keep going. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in languages, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or harp do not give distinct note, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, how will, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. Okay, pause. Now, I want to, first, next point I want to make is this. I want to balance what Paul says out. We've got to be careful here because I'll talk to people and they will, because one of the questions I'm going to ask, um, or let me even play my hand further, it's very popular nowadays. It's not popular. It, not popular, sure. There are, there are many people who love the Lord, who know Jesus, we'll see him in heaven, who claim that they have a spiritual prayer language. And I'm trying to evaluate that biblically. The primary function of their gift is their prayer life. And, okay, great. So one of the things I want to look at here is, okay, what does the Bible say about that? Do we find that in the Bible? Where is that? And so one of my questions that I'll, I'll get to, and we've got time, actually, I think I'll have time this morning, is, okay, what's the purpose of this prayer language? Like, what, what, what does it do? What does it accomplish? And they'll, they'll point to verse 2. The one who speaks in a language speaks not to men, but to God. 
And then they'll say verse 4, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. Okay. Okay. In the context, I'm not entirely sure Paul's saying that as as if it's a good thing, though. His whole thing is build up the church, build up the church. This is better. This guy's building himself up. This guy's building up the church. And I want to balance speaks to God in verse 2 with, um, where is it, speaking into the air, Um, 9. So with yourselves, if you in your tongue utter a speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is being said? You'll be speaking into the air. And I don't want to let either one of those rule the day. I don't want to just say, no, it's just speaking into the air. Likewise, no, it's speaking to God. Well, whatever it is, Paul's willing to call it both. That's all I'm saying. Paul is willing to speak of the person who is who's speaking in an, in an unknown language, both as speaking to God and speaking into the air. That's all I'm saying. We're going to move on. Um... Okay, so then, um, and this is, next point is big. Verse 10, I'm going to argue, is, is significant, very significant. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. I'm going to argue that Paul has just set the boundaries of what he's talking about with the gift of languages. I'm going to argue that Paul is assuming the gift of languages enables believers to speak in known earthly languages with known meaning. And I know what the response is going to be. Ah, but in 13.1, Paul says, if I speak in the tongue of men and angels. So doesn't that put angelic languages also on the table? I'm arguing, no, I'm arguing that the gift of languages is limited. Verse 10 tells us what Paul has in view to the known languages on the earth that all have meaning. And the question is, is that is that what's we're looking at in the gift of languages? Is that what we should expect for the gift of languages? Or could the gift of languages also include angelic languages? And, and the argument for that is verse 13.1. It's the only argument for that, by the way. I'll get to you in one, one second, Zeb. Hold on. Well, I'll let Zeb go first. Fine. Okay, so on the angelic languages, is the is it clear that he's speaking in terms of like a supernatural angelic? Because it's angelos, right? Is just yeah. messenger. Yeah. It's not necess- It doesn't seem like it necessarily has to be like you know a winged angel. Oh, I, I tend to think it is a winged angel only because I think in thirteen, if we look at look at thirteen, it's hyperbole. Um, you guys know what hyperbole is? You want to look up hyperbole? I could use a definition of hyperbole. It's an intentional exaggeration to make a point. Yeah. 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 So if I say everyone was there. He spoke like an angel. Yeah, yeah. Here's why I say that. Let's look at the other things Paul says. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith. Now, does anyone think Paul is actually contemplating that a Christian could understand all mysteries, have all prophetic powers and all faith? Or is this hyperbole? If you're going to argue, no, he's really putting angelic languages on the table, then you've also got to argue on the table... Paul is contemplating there may be Christians who understand all mysteries, have all prophetic powers, and all faith, so as to remove mountains, that that's also on the table as well. I don't think so. I think it's hyperbole. He's, he's arguing from the greater to the lesser. Even if I could do these things, but don't have love, I'm nothing. And even if I knew everything, I could tell you what every verse in the Bible means, and had all faith and all understanding, 
and of not love, I'm nothing. That's what he's doing. So I think the near context trumps the far context, and I think the, the clear statement in 10 trumps the hyperbolic statement in 13.1. And I, I really think, now the reason why this is a big point is because if the gift of languages is known earthly languages, then it's verifiable, isn't it? It's verifiable. Then someone came forward and said, I, I, I have a supernatural gift of languages. We could just say, cool, what language? And then we could, you know, type it into Google Translate or we could, you know, figure it out. Yes, Scott. So, in your Mike. Okay, so in here it switches from using the word tongues to languages. Is that the same Greek word? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. I was just curious. Yeah. Yeah, we're just using various forms of the glossolalia or gloss, gloss, glossis word family throughout the whole thing, whole discussion. It doesn't shift around or anything. The only difference is between whether it's singular or plural. Sometimes he talks about languages and sometimes language, but it's the same word. There's no subtle Greek interplay of shifting terms or anything. Yeah, ES. Well, ESV is just having a hard time because there are t- well, it's tough because whatever you do with it, you've got to add in unknown because otherwise, a strict literal. If I come to you speaking a language, no one will understand me. Well, the implication, a language by this gift, an unknown language. So, like the New American Standard, I think puts an unknown language um, in because the context makes it clear it's something like that, and so they're wrestling with that. So, tongues solves it. If I come to you speaking in a tongue. I will not be understood, right? So that's, that's the difficulty they're all trying to re- grapple with and, and find a way to make a smooth translation for. But the Holman is the most consistent. Um, they're also the only translation that will consistently translate doulos as slaves. So I like that. But anyway. Um, so this, this first point's key. And I just want you to think about it textually because this is a big point. If, if, if angelic languages are on the table, then... And we don't pick our theology by what's convenient. So the fact that it becomes harder to verify doesn't mean it's the wrong answer. I just want you to see the implications. If the gift of languages could include, or Paul's envisioning including angelic languages, verifiability is is now removed. Because how do you verify which angelic language is being spoken? Unless an angel shows up, you can't. If it's limited, like I think it is, to verse 10, there are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker, and a speaker a foreigner to me. If that's what Paul's envisioning, now we have verifiability. Um, so I, I, I think strongly that Paul is assuming the gift of languages is limited to known earthly languages. That statement, I think, governs that. Any, any questions? Because this point is huge. If you grant me this point... Um, if, if you buy this point, uh, it, it will be significant in its impact on how you work through these issues. Very, I, I'm, I'm understating the point at this point. Yes, Zach. He, the man needs a microphone. It's kind of a side point, but um, so you said like the verifiability that if someone says, I got the gift of languages, and you say, well, what language is it? Is it, could they like not know? Like well, they might not know. No, because what's clear here, we'll get to the next point, is the person who's given the ability to speak in another language doesn't even themselves understand what they're saying. Okay. But we can still verify. It'd be rather quick with Google Translate or whatever to, 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 to verify. It'd be easy enough to do. Uh, 
um, because we're aware of almost the totality of the languages in the world today. Um, so, you, yeah, you may not know what the person, Paul does not assume the person speaking in another language knows what language they're speaking. We'll get to that in a second. That'll be clear too. But my point is, there are not an unlimited number of earthly languages. We got databases and stuff. Um, you could figure it out, right? So that, that's my next point. So, so you got to work through that. Does 13.1 put angelic languages on the table legitimately, or doesn't it? I don't think it does, but my, some of my charismatic friends would disagree with me. Um, but I do have to say, even if... Okay, here's, here's where I'm going with this. I, I certainly can't speak for every case and every example, but I know that in every study where, um, and then the, this, is, this happened more about 30 years ago when the charismatic movement was just getting started, they invited verification. And so linguists would come in and record the stuff. And, and I, I, if you got documents or, or, YouTube or, or, or web links, let me know. But as far as I'm aware, there hasn't been any verification on what earthly languages these things are. That by and large, no one knows what language anyone's speaking, even experts study it. That's generally when the argument, well, then it must be angelic languages, came up. So even if you buy that angelic languages are legitimately put on the table by 13.1, isn't it awfully weird when every single charismatic I know claims to have an angelic language, not, you know, Egyptian or Coptic or Greek or Babylonian or whatever, Spanish or whatever. Every, without, without exception, every individual I've ever met in my life who claimed to have the gift of languages also claimed they had an angelic language, which also happens to be the one that is impossible to verify. That is not, it's not, it's not a death blow to the case. It should raise a certain amount of incredulity. Even if it's on the table, you would not expect it to only be that when verse 10 says, doubtless there's all these languages in the world today. Um, and, and I don't think we'd be having much of a discussion if people regularly were coming to faith and speaking Greek or Hebrew, or Syriac, or whatever, you know? Even if half of them are speaking in languages we don't know what they are, the other half are, you know, speaking languages we do know, clearly this is, anyway, that, that's, that's, that's the significance of that point. Um, moving on. Next point. Um, I will not know the meaning of the language. I will be a foreigner to the speaker, the speaker a foreigner to me. So will yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church, which is his main point in this chapter. Build up the church, dummies. Um, he's, in some senses, picking these two gifts, not randomly, but this isn't fundamentally about tongues and prophecy. This is about the importance of building up the church. Okay. Verse 13, therefore, one who speaks in a language should pray for the power to interpret. Now there, Zach, is the answer to your question. The assumption, without the power to interpret, they don't know what they said. Okay? Now, get this, 14. Here is where Paul looks at, in the face, the potential of praying, using your gift of languages to pray to God in that language. For if I pray in a language, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but with my, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, and I will sing praise with my mind also. So now, let me, let me, this is another, I think, difficulty. 
Paul's saying one of two things. Either Paul is saying, um, sometimes I pray in my gift of languages and my spirit prays. And other times I pray in my native tongue, my mind prays. The, the problem with that assumption is it's assuming that when you pray in English, your spirit isn't praying. To which I have to ask, when Jesus prayed in Hebrew or Aramaic and Greek, was it only his mind that was praying or was his spirit praying as well? I think what Paul is actually doing is stating why praying in an unknown language would be unhelpful. When you pray in an unknown language, only your spirit's involved. Your mind has no idea what's going on. Your mind is blank. It's, it's karpos, barren or unfruitful. And it's better to pray with your spirit and your mind. And I would submit that when I pray in English, I'm doing exactly that. And this is ultimately the challenge or the question I have to the, the person who, who claims to have a, a, a gift of prayer languages. To what benefit? To, to, to what end? What is accomplished by that? Um, well, my spirit's praying. Fantastic. Are you saying that without that gift, your spirit doesn't pray? I, I don't think so. I, I, yeah, so when Paul says, I'm going to pray with my mind and my spirit, I think what he's saying is I'm going to pray, I'd rather pray in a language I understand. Um, so I think he's saying at least. Um, so I'll pray with my spirit, but I'll also pray with my mind also. Sing praises with my spirit, and I'll sing praises with my mind other, also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? You may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. Now we get back to the main theme. Here's, here's the other point, and we got five minutes, so I'll try to lay it out. Um, in a minute... Paul is going to say what the purpose of the gift of languages is. He's going to say it in verse 22. Thus, tongues are a sign. It's the only place in the chapter where he gives you a purpose statement. We'll get to that probably next, next week. But I'm wide open that you can have a main purpose and sub-purposes, but I, I do think tongues functioning as a sign for unbelievers is its primary function. But Paul certainly entertains the possibility someone wouldn't be sinning if they had the gift of languages. If they prayed in a language, that'd be fine. I think Paul's saying he'd prefer personally to pray and know what he's saying. But let's assume for a moment somebody legitimately has the gift of languages and they're, they're using it primarily to pray in their prayer closet as their prayer language. Here, here's my question. One, how then do we have a gift that is fundamentally now, because most, most of my friends, and I got some dear friends, dear friends, friends have come up from New Hampshire to visit me, people I love, who, who believe they have prayer languages. Um, and my question to them, and, and they believe they're primarily prayer languages. So when I ask them, how does your gift of languages function as a sign for unbelievers? They say, no, 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 mine's primarily a prayer language. Okay, so then what you're saying is yours is primarily a self-edifying gift. Do you see the problem with everything Paul's been saying up to this point? Why are the gifts given? To each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. God's distributed all of the gifts for the common good. And so my first question is, okay, you've got a fundamentally or primarily self-edifying gift. Okay, okay. Next question, and we've got five minutes, and I'll throw this out, and we'll pick it up next week, is how does that even work? Let me ask you this. 
Do you believe God, when he's listening to us pray, is more concerned or is primarily paying attention to the state of our heart or to the words that come out of our mouth? Anyone here ever say something heretical in prayer by mistake? Oh, yeah. You're just praying and you say something. Or just, you know, you refer to the Jesus as Father or something. Yep, yep. No, no. I've done that. I've said stupid things in prayer, um, pouring my heart out to God. I don't think God's fooled when we flatter him in prayer. Or conversely, if you're like, God, I love you so much. Well, his heart looks cold, but if he says he loves me, okay. Yeah, I don't think that's the way it works. I, in other words, the words are not fundamentally for God's sake. Right? You with me? Whose sake are the words for? Mine. So I know what I'm saying. So what then is accomplished by me speaking in a language to God I don't understand that he doesn't primarily need. What, what, what's accomplished? What benefit has been achieved? Um, you, you, you understand less. Understanding's been taken away. Your mind is barren or fruitless. And God's not... So what, what, what do the function do the words have in that case? Um, yes, never prayed in a prayer language or anything like that. I don't have any like direct experience okay. with those kind of things, but yeah. I have a couple friends sure, sure. and who claim that they could pray in a prayer language. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm I'm not saying like anyone has directly said this, but from hearing them talk about it, I could see them saying that um the reason that a benefit to them of the prayer language, even though they don't understand the words, is almost like a spiritual high or something like you know, it's something mm. that really like gets them all excited about God and, mm. you know, having this experience, you know, some emotional experience that mm. um, they don't even know how to describe because, you know, they mm. don't understand the words. And sure. No, and so that's, and that's kind of the mystical effect of it. Sure. Like, no, no. This I, really gets me excited about following God. Yeah, no. And I think you'll hear something along the lines of um, uh, catharsis, along the lines of um, deep feelings and experience and that's not bad the bible's got a lot of deep feelings i'm not i'm not trying to mock it or anything for that sake i'm just trying to point out that really at this point well here's here's my next question let's assume you've got the gift of languages and let's assume you're praying and you don't know what you're saying but your spirit's being moved powerfully let's grant all that what difference would it make whether you were speaking angelic or gibberish in that case what would change you still don't know what you're saying. God's still not fundamentally paying attention to what you're doing, your words, and you're still feeling better. That, that, these are the questions I have, and I'm not trying to beat up. I'm just saying, I don't get it. Like, I don't see what's being accomplished. I don't see how this serves any real purpose. I, I don't see, we'll get to this next week, I don't see the, the use of the gift of languages, first and foremost, for prayer languages. I see it, and we see it in Acts, as a sign for unbelievers. We'll get to that next week. Paul certainly looks in the face of the possibility of praying in a language. But then he says, in doing so, your mind's unfruitful, and I'd rather pray with my mind. This, these are the questions I have for, for, for my friends, and i got dear friends. And maybe there's some great answers I haven't thought of, but these are definitely my questions um, for that. Now, we're at time. Yeah, Carol. Carol. We'll, go, we'll take one more. Yeah. This is just a passage of scripture Kathy just brought it to my end here so I give her the credit um, you know Romans 8 26 Ooh, you're gonna go to Romans 8 excellent all right 
Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with sighs too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts of men knows what's in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. It seems to me like we pray. We don't know what to pray. We might even pray heresy, as you said. We might pray things (laughs) that aren't really in our heart. Yeah, but this passage says it's the spirit right. who's it's the spirit who's speaking the prayer language to God and communicating. Well, no, no, but the the spirit's doing it non linguistically. Too well, deep right. for too deep for what? Right. Too deep for what? Yeah, for words. Is there any yeah. language that doesn't have words? No. This is in other words, I've I've talked to people. See, there's prayer languages. No, it's precisely not language. It's not words. Yep. Um. Yeah. No. No. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Well, we got a break there. We'll pick this up next time we have a lull in discussion, but we're slowly making... We made some actual progress today. Yeah. Okay. Thank you much. Have a good day.